Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from no underground. No change without struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinur. And it is in the air nowadays, isn't it? Putin, especially now, unveiling new monument of Stalin on Wednesday in Volgograd in Russia. Of course, Trump is still with us. Ron DeSantis is competing with him. Netanyahu, Orban, Modi, Iran, fascism and its strong people are all over the place now. And so we asked a, uh, one of the world's experts on fascism, Ruth Ben-Ghia, to join us today. She's a historian who writes about authoritarianism, democracy protection, and propaganda. She's professor of history and Italian studies at New York University the recipient of Guggenheim, Fulbright, and other fellowships, an advisor to protect democracy. She's an MSNBC opinion columnist, a regular contributor to CNN and the Washington Post, and provides live commentary on CNN, MSNBC, and other networks. She publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy, and her latest book is Strongman, Mussolini to the Present. Thank you so much, Ruth, for joining us today. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Tell us, uh, let's, let's start with just definitions. Uh, what is fascism? What is authoritarianism? And are fascist rulers always authoritarian? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a giant question. And I, I see fascism as the first stage, uh, along with early communism, in uh, what's now a century of authoritarianism. And in my book, I have kind of three parts, the, the classic. My book is about mostly right-wing strongmen. I wanted to see what happens when strong, you know, what happened when fascism died in 1945? Where did those impulses go and how do we connect those to today? So you had the, the classic fascist regimes, you know, hyper-nationalist, imperialist, misogynist, uh, racism, and the leader cult. The leader cult is extremely important. And the book looks at what stays the same and what has changed over a hundred years up to uh, people that you mentioned, like you know Trump and P- Putin and uh, Modi and who are uh, kind of new authoritarians. Some come from communism backgrounds like Putin and Orban. And some like Bolsonaro and Trump are a kind of uh, far right um, in their trajectories. Mm-hmm. So um, when you were watching Trump's first campaign, uh, what did you think? How did you feel? And uh, did he fulfill your expectations? I, I felt a sense of dread, quite honestly. I, I started uh, writing about him in 2015, so really early, because uh, the minute I saw him at his rallies, um, the way he, I, I recognized him from studying fascists, <laughs> that he's a demagogue and extremely skillful at connecting with people. Because one of the secrets of this strong men is that they know how to communicate with their followers. They express care for their followers. They um, have direct communications channels, whether it was, you know, in the 30s, Hitler was very skilled with radio. Um, Trump had Twitter and they all have rallies. And Modi, go, go to Modi's Instagram account. He is extremely skilled at connecting with followers. So I saw Trump doing this, and I saw him having his followers take a loyalty oath, which really scared me. And I thought, okay, 
uh, it's going to be our turn. <laughs> so I started writing and I started tracking him and writing extensively, mostly in CNN, um, uh, about him. I felt that he was going to have a personality cult. He was going to uh, govern as an authoritarian. And this was before he, and it, and, and before he came into office. And people didn't quite know what to think about these statements of mine. They thought it was hyperbole or it can't happen here. That's the big obstacle that people think it can happen in their country. Yeah, and um, of course it has happened. And um, I had a conversation just um, a few days ago with um, someone who said, um, well, he was not a fascist. He was not a strong man. Uh, the judicial system survived. Everything survived. Uh, this is a democratic country and um, everything is okay basically <laughs> what are you thinking now that um, you know we're looking at 2024 and we're looking at Ron DeSantis trying to out Trump Trump um, are you concerned or do you think that this country is just fine uh, it, it's not fine there's a, you, there's a lot to unpack in what you said <clears throat> first of all uh, Trump only had four years. He did an immense amount of damage to our institutions, to the notion of truth, to the figure of the journalist, which was demonized, um, to he, he put the uh, GOP under a kind of authoritarian discipline where there's a real party line. And look at the evolution of figures like Kevin McCarthy or Lindsey Graham. <clears throat> and he truly created a kind of authoritarian party. And he, but he only had four years. And we have to realize that Putin has now been in office as long as Mussolini, over 20 years. Orban has been there for 12 years. Modi's been there since 2014. So it takes time to wreck institutions um, enough to pull off a coup attempt. And that's also why Bolsonaro, he was only there from 2019. And he too did a lot of damage and he, in his own you know, way, solicited a coup attempt and neither of these worked. But the key is that <clears throat> the Republican Party was already transformed by Trump and January 6th was a profoundly radicalizing event for the Republican Party. And they do not disavow January 6th, quite the contrary. There are people like Marjorie Taylor Greene who have enormous power now in Congress who would do it all again tomorrow and indeed boasted just a few months ago that had she planned it, uh, it would have been, it would have worked and there would have been more arms. So we, we, we have gone through a period of enormous transformation. And the last point to bring up Ron DeSantis, in my research, um, when somebody like Trump comes into the system, um, they affect it in a semi-permanent way and they, cause um, imitators who study the leader, which Ron DeSantis did. I've been writing about him for several years now. I'm very worried about him. And, and DeSantis even copies Trump's hand gestures. And he remade himself um, learning the lessons of Trump as an extremist. And that's what the base wants. That's where the GOP is going. And so he's a big threat now to our democracy, Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. And you say in your book, Strongman, that um, really all of them are learning from the previous ones. That um, yeah. which, which is even more scary to think that um, the original fascists, you know, if we're talking Mussolini and Hitler, uh, I mean, they're not the original, but but that's where we start um, with this book. Um, the 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 incredible damage that they caused um, to the countries, to the whole world, um, has been studied, and people have mm -hmm. used their methods, and and it keeps going, and I guess improving, if if you will. Um, they learn from each other, and um, and things are progressing. Is is that even more scary? It, it is. They've always learned from each other, and probably the most common um, question I get from people is, okay, we know Trump doesn't read, 
He is a very impatient man. So is he just making it all up or is there a playbook? And one part of the answer to this, which of course scared me to no end as an American while I was writing Strong Men, um, is that they all have similar personalities. There's certain things that um, link these people from Mussolini up to Trump. And one of them is that <clears throat> they have no moral code. They're totally amoral. And they will do or say anything to get to power and to stay in power. They will remake themselves. They will be whoever people need them to be at that moment. And they will say A in the morning to one group, and they will say B or the opposite of A in the afternoon. And that's why all of them <clears throat> have these really weird, eclectic constituencies. Um, for example, Mussolini was a total atheist, and yet he was the one who had the backing of the Vatican. Trump, too. You couldn't find somebody more immoral and impious than Trump. But he got both Orthodox Jews and uh, evangelicals to say that he's in office by the will of God. And so you have gangsters, housewives, priests, <laughs> all kinds of people. And to each of these groups, the strong man, because he has no morals and no principles, <clears throat> excuse me, will be what they need him to be and promise them deals. And this is called in uh, academics, this is called the authoritarian bargain. When the strong man will make a bargain with all these different groups um, and and that's why they support him. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I would add to what you said that um, at least in the case of Trump, which I um, have studied best because I live here in this country, um, his followers included the very rich and the rich and also a lot of the poor and uneducated, but also the educated and I, you know, I probably, like you, being a professor, um, would like to think that education um, is a vaccination, so to speak, against uh, support for these kind of characters, but um, that didn't prove necessarily true um, in the case of um, Trump. No, and it's uh, it's not the case for any of these guys. In fact, we, we talked before about the idea that it can't happen here. And in Germany, so you had the example of Italy, and Hitler was idolizing Mussolini because he came, he, he came to power very fast. He was a huge success story, and Hitler couldn't get to power uh, fast. He had to go to jail, and then he took him a decade. But many Germans said, oh, it can't happen here because... Germany was among the most advanced in the entire world in science, in engineering, in all technologies, uh, also graphic design, an incredible Weimar Germany. Think of all the fervent of architecture, the Bauhaus. And so, so people thought, as well as high culture, you know, the, all, the, all the, the amazing composers. So many Germans thought that this crazy, you know, person with the mustache isn't going to go very far. It can't possibly happen. And <clears throat> one of the lessons I, I learned writing the book is that every, it's sad, but every country thinks it can't happen there. Mm. And in Chile, like even with a military coup, so a third of the book is on coups, and I had no idea it was going to be so useful for America to know about coups, but it has proved to be useful. And there was the age of military coups, U.S.-backed coups. And so in one after another, these countries were falling to these coups. And the Chileans said, well, it's not going to happen to us because our army is loyal to the Constitution. <laughs> and then it happened. And in the case of America, we're very liable for this because <clears throat> America has indeed been, um, I'm first generation American. It's been a place where people who were oppressed um, by all kinds of situations could come um, and see that Statue of Liberty. Um, on the other hand, our democracy is actually, as I see it, very, very uh, new. It's only since the 1960s. And a lot of what's going on with, <clears throat> with Trump is that he was able to appeal to people from the beginning 
who didn't like what was happening. They were angry about having an African-American president. They were very angry. They were angry about same-sex marriage and all the social progress that was made. And, and so <clears throat> it's, it's very easy for people to be in denial and think that these guys are just clowns. They're going to go away. And the, or, they're, or they're just like regular politicians with some moods. So we saw all of that with Trump. And I am worried because we're seeing a bit of that with DeSantis. Not that he's a clown, but that he's, uh, there's been many op-eds in big places saying he's normal. He's a normal politician. Well, he's not a normal politician. He's an extremist. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to bring back again that uh, person that I was talking with who um, said it's ridiculous to call it coup attempt. If it were, they would be there with the weapons, and I bet you each one of them has at least three, four, if not 20 or 200 um, different uh, firearms. Uh, what would you say to that? Yeah, so the, the first thing, which goes on your your earlier point, there's been very interesting studies about who was at January 6th. And, you know, at the beginning, we were misdirected by the QAnon shaman and the people in costumes <clears throat> away from the fact that, um, yes, there were many extremists, the Oath Keepers and all these other people, militia groups, but there was a huge group of people who um, studies have found, one study calls them middle-class and middle-aged, architects, computer programmers, people who were not formally radicalized, but they were devoted to Trump. And they were willing to come and bash some heads. And of course, this is where our gun policies, everybody can own weapons. Um, And they were radicalized going to Trump rallies. That's what his rallies were for. They're incubators from 2015 on they're incubators of violence. So <clears throat> when you look at coups, coups are going to look different in the 21st century. There aren't quite as many military coups. And what we see both in January 6th and in Brazil is that they weren't able to get the military to stage a coup. Trump tried through Michael Flynn very hard, mm-hmm. but it didn't work because of uh, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and a few other people. So he got together what I call a private army of thugs. And that's what Bolsonaro did too, right? His supporters camped out and there it's much more dangerous in terms of, excuse me, the military because they had a military dictatorship uh, for 21 years in Brazil. But here, this is the kind of the future where these demagogues have, um, and and that's why the, the personality cult is absolutely key. You have to, depict yourself as a victim. You have to, you have to first, there's a formula for this now, you, you um, convince the public that the electoral system is flawed, it's rigged, it's corrupt, in case you lose. Then when you lose, you're the victim. And you are also able, because of your personality cult, to keep your followers in a state of agitation, thinking you're the rightful winner. And you've also preached violence. And Bolsonaro did this In June 2022, he actually said to his followers, quote, if necessary, we will go to war. And this was months before the election. So they they know what they're doing. They build up this eventuality. And then people are ready to go if they lose to avenge um, their hero, to avenge their idol. Mm-hmm. My guest is Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She's a leading expert on fascism, professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. Her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. And we're talking about fascism and its um, spread um, nowadays throughout the world. You're welcome to join the conversation if you have a uh, relevant comment or question and you haven't called in the past seven days. 608-256-2001 extension 9. You can join us on social media at Talk on Twitter or a public affair on Facebook. Oh, we do have a caller for you, Ruth. So um, let's get to her right away and then continue. Julie, you're on the, Julianne, you're on the um, air. Yes, I've got a question about strong women. You've been talking about strong men, and there seems to be a crop of strong women that are coming up. 
largely associated with guns. Uh, I'm thinking of Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm thinking of Governor um, Sarah Huckabee, who is going to be giving the response to the State of the Union uh, quite shortly. So you'll we'll, we'll be able to see more of her. Now, I'm I'm wondering, is there something about the culture of guns that will be able to transform uh, this this uh, uh, set of women into uh, authoritarian leaders, or uh, is there something else that's going on here? Thank you so much for this wonderful program. Thank you, Ruth. So at the end of my book, which is Strong Men, and it has a chapter on masculinity, um, I do say that it is inevitable in the future that we will have uh, a far-right state, an authoritarian state led by a woman. And at the time, I was thinking of Marine Le Pen in France. Um, but of course, uh, she, and she may indeed prevail. She's come closer and closer. We also have um, uh, the first female prime minister in Italy who is a neo-fascist. That's a huge deal for all women. And uh, I'll get to America in a minute. But there's been this um, phenomenon that uh, people call gender washing, where you have these female politicians who, you know, uh, present themselves as good for women, as present, you know, they're they're defending women rights, they're um, taking w- female power to new levels, but but they actually are um, taking away women's rights, as in the case of reproductive rights, and they're 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 doing things um, that are cruel, inhuman, and in the case of women in our country with guns, are killing children. You know, gun violence is the top killer of children today. And the GOP has actually become a death cult. If you put its environmental policies, its gun policies, its coup policies, all of it together. So, you know, you have these women who are very important part of the new right. And it's it's very interesting to me that around the world, it's been the far right that's promoted these women and not the center left. Um, and so Italy, which has an, it's has the biggest left in Europe for a whole century, basically. And yet the first female prime minister is a neo-fascist. So there's many women to watch in our country from Marjorie Taylor Greene to Nikki Haley, who's going to announce she's running for president uh, and, and the others that you mentioned. So thank you for asking about that. Um, it's, a, it's, it's the future. It's part of the future. Mm-hmm. So... Ruth, I think you looked, I, I, I often ask my guests um, to explain how these people think. And um, usually they don't know. They, they um, can maybe guess, but um, I think that you, um, <laughs> you might be able to, you might be able to explain that. How... How do these people think, and especially now that we put women in the picture too, how do these women think? What makes people, humans, um, individuals want to be that person who destroys, who destructs, who um, allows for kids to be killed, who sometimes maybe um, encourages that? Um, Who who are these people? Are they, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of lacking for words. Go ahead, please. Um, I mean, in general, I did, I had to, to write the book, I had to immerse myself in the heads of these killers. Yeah. And it was not a pleasant experience. I had to do a lot of yoga <laughs> to, to get through. And, and my daughter would come home and see these, you know, these these all these books stacked up about horrible people and but that's this is how um unfortunately they have no regard for human life they get addicted to power and this they will do anything to keep that power they actually many of them you know they stay in office because they uh, are highly corrupt uh, putin has a kleptocracy where they just they, they hate their people so much that they steal from them they lie to them like that's what trump does right he lies to people and they have utter scorn for humanity um and it's a very scary bleak place to to be and i remember in march 2020 i was interviewed by um huff post uh the person who follows uh who covers far-right extremism and 
I said um, that Trump just couldn't care less if you lived or died from the pandemic. And people got very upset <laughs> at this, that it was too, too, like, too depressing. How could I say such a thing that he, the, the president didn't care if you lived or died? But that's how it is. And in fact, months later, Trump was presented on air with the statistic that 100,000 Americans had died. And he just shrugged and said, it is what it is. Yeah. So, so this is now for the women, it's very interesting because, of course, we, we may expect uh, women to have a higher standard of care, um, care for people or care for children. How indeed I don't have um, an explanation beyond fanaticism and the cult of power as to why uh, women who are mothers um, are supporting, are, are having gun, uh, guns on their lapel. You may have seen in the news that several lawmakers, instead of the, the American flag, they're wearing uh, assault rifles on their lapels, which is perfect. That just says it all. And since, again, guns are the biggest killer of American children, uh, it's, 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 in fact, you are without words because it is difficult to put into words why someone would be so destructive but um, unfortunately, the, the GOP as an autocratic party, a far right party, is a party of fanatics now and a party of criminals. Uh, of course, George Santos is now, he, of course, he's in Congress, the total fraudster. And he's one of the ones wearing the gun, of course. And um, of course, the GOP is elevating oath keepers. And these are violent extremists who believe they, they're against the government and they believe that violence is the way you change history. So what happens, this is a rhetorical question, what happens to our country when the, the extremists are the lawmakers? Well, fascism happens, um, whatever it's going to look like today, because um, that's what fascism was, the criminals and black shirts and brown shirts, people who bashed heads and planned mass killings, and they become the lawmakers that's what fascism is. Mm -hmm. So besides that, what, what are the conditions that make the ascent of authoritarian fascists possible and likely? What, what are the conditions that have been similar throughout all these years um, that allowed for fascism to take over? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, and in fact, the, the book is about identifying patterns. And one of the main things is... Uh, these kind of demagogues have success when societies have gone through a lot of change uh, quickly or perceived in, too quickly. And, and so, uh, of course, after World War War, World War I, which was, you know, mass male uh, death and dismemberment, disruption of, you know, many empires fell. World War I was a total shock to every kind of system, gender roles, and that created fascism. And so you see again and again that, um, and we were set up very well for this. So I mentioned before, um, we had eight years of an African-American president, and many people couldn't accept that. Uh, people were worried about changing demographics, and Obama um, admitted women into combat, um, elevated women, legalized same-sex marriage, and all of these things together, um, that's a case study. And we had a female a presidential candidate. So this is the end of civilization between quotes, white male civilization. So over and over again, it's times when um, male status is, a, is perceived as threatened. Um, and also women who identify with tradition. Um, and when the, that is there, as well as often there's economic suffering, um, but not always, um, you have these demagogues who come in and say, I will fix it. I alone can fix it, <laughs> like Trump said. And what did he do? He was very open about racism and sexism. Um, he was the man who gets away with everything, the man who's the defender of other men. Um, and a little known fact, and then this translates into policy, he partly, Trump partly decriminalized domestic violence. There was so much going on that these major things, I put this in my book, because so I was like, oh, I don't think people know about that. Um, and, he, and he had a lot of domestic abusers in his administration, like Steve Bannon. 
So it's a revenge on progress, on social progress. And it could be workers' rights. It could be gender emancipation, racial equity. And that's when these people uh, are popular. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a related question before we go to our next caller. Um, you talk, and you mentioned it earlier, about the role of masculinity and virility in uh, the making of a strong man. So talk about that, please. Yeah, I really felt... Um, when I looked around at the literature on, on authoritarianism, um, there's, of course, there's many studies about gender by political scientists, but I felt like people were not taking masculinity seriously. And, you know, we all see Putin with his shirt off and Mussolini did the same thing and we could laugh or Trump blustering or Berlusconi and his sex parties. And we can just dismiss this as ridiculous, but it's not ridiculous. It's part of how they rule. So what I wanted to do in the book was to look at how the perception of the all-powerful man, um, the personality cult based on this kind of certain type of masculinity, works together with propaganda and corruption. So for example, um, and this, this is so interesting, this has not changed for 100 years since Mussolini. He's the man of people, and so they relate to people very well, ordinary people. Um, but he's the man above all other men. So he's all-powerful, untouchable. He is the man who gets away with things other men cannot. And that's very important for corruption. He's the man who gets away with things. And that's Trump. That was Netanyahu. So then you have people, let's, oh, I'm going to run for office while I'm under investigation. Now, most people, a Democratic with a small d, would not do that. Why would you run for office while you're investigation? You're going to lie low, not the strong man. <laughs> he needs to run for office while he's under investigation so he can get into power and shut down the investigation um, by purging the judiciary or whatever he needs to do or arresting the investigators. So the machismo is really important for his appeal. And that's why you get other lawless people who go into politics. And because they see that the Trumps and the Netanyahu's and the, the Bolsonaro's are gonna reward them for being um, macho. Um, and, and then it also works together with misogyny where you put women down, right? So I felt it was really important to have a whole chapter on it. And it's the first book that has a chapter uh, on uh, masculinity saying it's, hey, let's look at propaganda, let's look at corruption, but let's also look at uh, machismo. Yeah. Well, we have uh, a couple callers for you. Let's get to the phones. Hi, Steve, you're on the air. Uh, good afternoon, Esty and Ms. Ben-Giet, uh, whose analysis is just wonderful. I just want to point out a very specific characteristic of early classic fascism in Italy and Germany that I see paralleled with the Trump phenomena. In the 1920s, a newly enfranchised electorate, including the working class and women, helped elevate Mussolini and Hitler to power. In the 20-teens in the U.S., a population of rural laboring class individuals who were previously politically disillusioned non-voters suddenly were inspired to vote by a charismatic, charismatic lying strongman mm-hmm. um, promising solutions to their perceived victimhood. The parallel isn't precise because in Italy it was a legal enfranchisement and in the U.S. it was a, uh, a voluntary uh, self-enfranchisement. Uh, but uh, there's that little detail for you, and thanks for this great program. Bye. Thank you, Steve. Ruth? Yeah, I would just say that that's, that's an excellent, accurate comment, and this is something that um, when Trump addressed himself to people who were hurting, to rural populations, to working class, um, and said, you are the forgotten but you'll be forgotten no longer. This was, this was part of his success. And the Democrats, and now I am speaking with a capital D in the U.S., really missed this outreach to uh, rural people and white rural people. And so I've, I've been watching um, more this year and the midterm selections. I've been watching 
some new candidates who are coming up, like John Fetterman. Uh, he connected with white working class voters in a very successful way. And there are other candidates who are uh, doing outreach to Latino voters, uh, uh, include rural and urban, who Democrats figured, oh, well, we don't have to worry about those people or we're not interested in those people. So um, there are many lessons to be learned by, from Trump's successes uh, about Democratic shortcomings, which I think are now being addressed. Whether it's too late for 2024, I don't know. But uh, thank you for pointing that out, because that, that is indeed um, part of the, the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jim, you're on the air. Hello. You're, <laughs> I'm glad you're doing this program. Um, I was wondering what you made of Nancy McLean's book, Democracy and Change, if you've read it, or what you think of the Koch's 40-year-long effort with the John Birch Society, with the Tea Party, with ALEC. I mean, they've been systematically at this business for a long, long time, and I think what we're seeing is the result of that more than anything else. Um, I mean, they've spent lots and lots of money doing it. So I was just wondering what you think the difference is between their kind of libertarianism and fascism. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, I think the Kochs should be on the front page every day for the destruction that they are doing in all realms of American society. They are, because they have the money, um, they are up to so many things. Um, and libertarianism is part of it. And by the way, <clears throat> by the way, who is a big libertarian or is remaking himself in that direction is Ron DeSantis. And he's connecting with, with those people. In, fi- in fact, I don't know who the Cokes are backing, probably him, but he's got over 50 billionaires now who are supporting his uh, mm. supposed maybe future candidacy for the president. But I love Nancy McLean's book. Um, I think it's very important. And I'm very worried about the inability of the, or the, I don't know, seeming disinterest of the media in, in, um, in <laughs> highlighting the destructive reach and range and scope of the Koch um, efforts. I myself, uh, 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 you know, are following what they're doing, what they've been doing in education, which is now coming to a head in many places. And uh, I am on, um, personally, on this uh, professor watch list. And this is, they have this organization, Turning Point USA. And within Turning Point USA, they have an organization called Campus Reform. The reform they want is to kick out liberals and leftists from the academy. So they've got this thing called Professor Watch List, and hundreds of people are on it now. And if you piss somebody off, you get on it, and they have a page about you claiming that you're, you know, radical Marxist and you're doing this and that. And at the bottom of your page, there's a phone number where people can call to try and have you fired. Um, and that's, that's too, is the Coke, um, you know. And in my case, I'm at a private university, so the public does pay my salary, and I'm tenured. So uh, there's not much, I'm not too worried about it, but there are plenty of people on there, my colleagues at other institutions, who are being hassled. So I, I'm glad you asked about that, Jim, because I'm, I'm frustrated that we're not paying more attention to their dark money and their uh, destructive efforts to in- interfere in all areas of our society. Yeah, and also to add to what Jim said, um, we had here in Wisconsin the prequel to Trump, Scott Walker. Yes. Um, and it was amazing. Like the moment he got elected, they started putting out something like 10 bills every day. They they just absolutely overwhelmed um, those who would be fighting against what they're doing by the sheer number of things that they have had prepared, that they have been working on for many, many years. And again, it seems like the Democrats or, you know, any of uh, those who would work against that, um, A, were totally unprepared and, mm-hmm. of course, overwhelmed, and uh, B, don't have that in their pocket. Um, so, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, what that's, do we do? That's, um, 
So one of the goals of um, the far right, um, which is facilitated by their formidable media machines all over the world, is to exhaust you. Exhaust the democratic lawmakers through threats and the sheer volume of what they produce. And we got a little taste of this um, at the very beginning of the Trump administration. And this is, this is Bannon. Bannon says, you strike at the state, you fled the zone with you know what, um, with manure, because we're not swearing on this program. He said, you fled the zone. And we all hear that fled the zone comment. But what does it mean? It means to just spew so much stuff, legislation, um, propaganda, threats, um, smears, that people become exhausted. And it's very difficult for Democrats, uh, including you know people in the Democratic Party, because we don't have a parallel media machine. Um, we also, as Democrats, don't have a party line. That's not what democracy is about. But it's very effective that, the, that Republicans have the party line. And they have figures. There's no analog to uh, Tucker Carlson on the Democratic side, who is not just a, he is a fascist demagogue. I don't always use the F word, but he is one. And he's also an enforcer. He's what I call an authoritarian enforcer. If somebody deviates from the party line, like when Ted Cruz made a mistake and said that January 6th was a domestic terrorist event, he had to be hauled on the show in prime time and humiliated because he's not supposed to go against the party line. Um, so. So when you say we're unprepared, you're right. We're not. We're not prepared um, because partly because there's an asymmetry in the way it works, and partly because no one's ever prepared um, when these authoritarian uh, attempts at taking over or successful takeovers happen. Well, and, and on top of that, we have this uh, new authoritarianism, at least in this country, of uh, keeping the simile of democracy. People yeah. can still vote, but um, but the Republicans have come with all these ways to make sure that only some people can vote. Um, as one example, uh, here in Wisconsin, we've seen incredible gerrymandering, the demand for ID, uh, not allowing to vote uh, by mail or ahead of. So, so what do we do? What what can be done? What needs to be done? What has worked in the past in in the fight against fascism? So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna correct when I say we're never prepared for these things. Guess who was prepared? The Brazilians. When Bolsonaro lost, they, the, the major authorities in society, the head of the Supreme Court, the Electoral Tribunal, uh, they all certified the electoral results in a few hours, which their system allows them to do. But all of the key players uh, of authorities in different areas of society, including military commanders, came forth the night of the election <laughs> United Front and said Bolsonaro lost. They did that because they know exactly what happens. Uh, they had a military coup and it led to, to 21 years of dictatorship. And so they were prepared. They were prepared. But, and it's easier to be prepared if you have a dictatorship that only ended in 1985. So there are millions of Brazilians who were like, oh yeah, I know what's going to happen. I lived through this or they disappeared my mother. Um, so, but in terms of this, what we call electoral autocracy, which is today's where you have the veneer of elect, you keep elections going, but you, you rig the game, you fix the game so that the results through gerrymandering, all the things you said, so that you get the results that you need. You also use propaganda, massive disinformation to present. Uh, we're seeing this now. I, I tweeted about, uh, three, four months ago that, uh, 2023 is going to be uh, commies 24-7. It's going to be all about the left because that's part of the right-wing playbook. And, and if you don't have huge amounts of commies in society, you invent them. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, lo and behold, I was so busy the last days taping specials on autocracy and giving interviews. I hardly noticed, I'm going to write about it in my newsletter, that apparently the GOP passed a resolution against socialism. 
Oh. Um, like maybe yesterday this happened. Really? I'm like, there we go. Commies 24 um, seven. And, and, and so, so that's anyway, all of that. But what we can do is it's still very important to get people to vote all the more important because only a true onslaught of, uh, of, of voting can compensate for these tricks that are being installed into our system, number one. Number two is unity. Now, we're different than most countries in that we only have the two parties, but I've been studying the failures in Hungary and in um, Italy and in Israel. Uh, what ha why did these demagogues get to come to power? It's often because the opposition forces either didn't unite or they moved too far to the right or the center and they didn't stand for something. They didn't like really assert themselves as an alternative. But in our, in our situation, I'm still haunted by the fact that, you know, 80 million people didn't vote in 2020. Um, and we've got to get these people uh, registered and we've, that's something that we can do. Because that, that makes a difference, even if we get 20 million of these people to vote out of the 80, that could tip the scales and compensate in part for all the trickery that is being embedded in our systems now. Well, and what do you say to the people, and I have them in my own family and in my close, uh, who say, what, you want me to vote for Hillary Clinton? She's just, you know, the same as they have been. She'll start wars. And I mean, Biden is, you know, involved in wars, even though um, not directly. Um, they don't care about me. I feel disenfranchised. I'm not going to vote. I have no one to vote for. What do you say to them? Well, that's why I've been giving 300 interviews a year in the last years to educate people because you may not like Hillary Clinton or whatever. You may think that these the Democrats are too establishment, and here we have this problem of just these two huge monolithic parties. Um, but the alternative will be far worse. And we and and it's very short-sighted to say, well, I don't like this person, um, so I'm not going to vote for them, and then um, you know let the chips fall where they may. But the chips will fall, and you will lose your rights, and your environment will be totally destroyed in an accelerated basis. And You'll have repression and your, all your books will be banned nationwide. And what Ron DeSantis is doing will be exported uh, on a national scale. So part of it is, is letting Americans know what the future could look like based on the present and the past of what's going on. And you can do that. There's lots of evidence uh, of, of decline of democracies and what the alternative looks like. Yeah, but maybe people who have not been under 21 years or 35 years of, um, of military dictatorship just don't understand it. But we do have another caller for you who I want to get to quickly. Uh, Frankie, thank you for your uh, patience. Go ahead. Hi, thank you. Um, I really appreciate Wharton. I've learned so much through all this. But anyway, I want to throw out... Um, Uncle Sam as the strong man, and I can kind of understand why people don't want to vote because, you know, like we've, our whole country, like manifest destiny, exceptionalism, slavery, I'm, our national anthem, it's the third verse still, you know, supports like slavery, and I'm just wondering how like these you said we're liable for U.S.-backed coups like in Chile and around the world. So I'm like, how are we not a strong man no matter who we vote for? It seems like our atrocities, we're just not facing the reality of our democracy and the foundation and where it's been throughout our history. Yeah. Thanks, Frankie. Ruth. Um. That's a, it's a very good point. And um, there, we're in a period where uh, all the book bans and the anti-CRT, all of that is designed to help us forget our nation's mm -hmm. history. But what's, what's important is that if we, 
it's very easy to feel disillusioned with the United States, uh, which indeed has a double heritage. It it has been it has been a, a beacon of freedom. It rebuilt democracy. It rebuilt you know Italy and Germany after World War II. It's done so many good things, and it's also done many many bad things. <laughs> um, but by not voting, by detaching, we are giving up our right to help change things and to help because uh, there are many, many amazing people and things going on in this country. Bridge building, uh, de depolarization initiatives, anti-disinformation. We don't hear about them in, often enough. Um, and it's actually exciting to be part of change and to, to never give up hope that our country uh, can't, the better part of our country can prevail. And if you don't vote, you, you're just giving up your agency and uh, allowing whoever comes in with bad intentions to just try and uh, control how you think and what you read and who you love. And that's no good. Mm -hmm. So I have a big question that I should have asked earlier. You won't have time to answer it well, but maybe you can help people think about that. As climate change is taking its toll, I'm afraid that a lot more fascists are going to come to power. Um, do you agree? And if so, or if not, why? You know, we're, we're in a really, really fateful moment because, in fact, um, Putin's war, for example, um, and uh, his he is fossil fuel, that's where he gets his profits, uh, has shown the world how corrupt and inefficient um, authoritarianism actually is. The whole way is war has not gone as planned. And there's a new um, will, political will, environmental will, um, that, that the, uh, for democracy that this war has revealed. Zelensky's an international hero. Many European countries are transitioning toward clean energy now. So there's a lot to be hopeful for. And also, even in China and in Iran, there are, we are living through a global renaissance of protest. And young people in particular, who are the ones mostly out in the streets, in, even in these countries where repression is terrible, um, they know that their futures are compromised by uh, climate change, by gun violence. And so... There, I see us on the cusp of uh, actually uh, an anti-authoritarian future, potentially. It may take a while to manifest, but it's there. Huh. Okay, I'm so glad to hear you saying that because um, I, my, my view is darker, but I really am grasping for hope. So um, to hear someone like you who has studied it so deeply... Um, thinking, feeling that way, that's very uh, encouraging. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, historian who writes about authoritarianism, democracy, protection, and propaganda, professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. Her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, highly recommended, and she also publishes Lucid, which I'm assuming is available online. Yeah, it's a Substack newsletter, and it's where I'm once a week. I have an essay, and I have Q&As every week where uh, we could continue the conversation we, exactly like this. Excellent. Um, so you can sign up at my uh, website, which is uh, ruthbendiet.com or, or on Twitter. And Giat is G-H-I-A-T. Thank you so much again, Ruth. I uh, really appreciate you spending the hour with us. And, and thanks to Samer and Jade and Patty and STD Noor. Join us again next week. Bye-bye. You're listening to WRT 89.9 FM, Madison, Wisconsin. Stay tuned for Melvin Floyd.